acorns jumping off my Chinese house. Two ducks in my spyglass, furry as a mouse, it's a suey nature, a suey nature thing. It's a suey nature, a suey nature thing. Welcome to Yarns at Yin Hu, a podcast about the fiber arts and other post-apocalyptic skills. Episode 206, How Yellow is Too Yellow, Sunday, September 16th, 2018. I'm your host, Sarah. You can find me on social media as Sarah Pomegranate. The Yarns at Yin Hu podcast has a Facebook page, and it's available on iTunes. Each time I record an episode, I post show notes and photographs and links to things I talk about on my website, yarnsatyinhu.com. Today's episode features the following segments, on the porch, the front porch, off the shelf, and so forth. On the Porch is Lovage, a colorwork sweater by Marie Wallen. This has been getting the bulk of my attention, and the project is moving along pretty nicely. This is my Rhinebeck sweater. Hopefully, it will be chilly enough at Rhinebeck to wear this very warm sweater. And this is also my Wooly Thistle sweater knit-along project, as the majority of the yarns that I'm using are from Jameson and Smith that I purchased through the Woolly Thistle, with a few other odds and ends thrown in. I think I will end up using about 10 colors in this colorwork sweater. Someone was asking me on Instagram if this is a fair aisle sweater or referred to it as a fair aisle sweater. And I don't think so. I would refer to this sweater as a stranded colorwork sweater, a colorwork yoke sweater. It's unique in that the colorwork extends down over the sleeve and chest area. And some knitters have even made, just done repeats of some of the motifs and have made an entirely colorwork sweater. And that would be this pattern would be a good tool to use if you were looking to make a colorwork sweater and you felt a little bit brave in branching out on your own and figuring out stitch counts and which um, colorwork patterns would work for your stitch counts. Some of the motifs, especially near the neckline of the yoke, I think would qualify as fair aisle motifs because they are very small. They have, you know, usually Fair Isle has a repeat in the stitch count of like nine or fewer stitches. It could qualify in some ways as Fair Isle because you are only ever using two colors at the same time. So even though this is a very colorful sweater, the knitter is only holding two colors in her hands at any given time. Some of the patterning in this sweater 
are very large motifs. I think 44 stitches was one of them. And even though they're, they're traditional kind of motifs, there's a very big snowflake that starts the patterning across the chest area. They're too big to qualify as Fair Isle, and they also prevent the knitter from making a lot of shifts to the stitch count. When you're working with a stitch count of six stitches, you can increase or decrease very rapidly or readily as long as you're coming up with a stitch count of that's a multiple of six. But when you have a pattern that's 44 stitches wide, you can't really add and subtract from that another 44 stitches. It's just not going to work. It's going to be way too small or way too big. And so relying on the designer's numbers for the pattern becomes very important. That's fine if your gauge matches the patterns, but mine did not. So I've been constantly playing with my rather loose gauge and the pretty steep stitch count of this sweater. I decided to knit the smallest size and so far, I've used US 1s, US 1.5s, and US 2s for the sweater. And I don't foresee going up a needle size. I think I'm going to continue with the 2s through the color work yoke and then probably drop down to a 1.5 or a 1 for the, the ribbed um, neckband. So that is very slow stitching. It takes a long time to accumulate fabric when you're working at a gauge like that. And it's given me a lot of time to think about future projects. It's very meditative. And for the larger charts, I was not able to listen to anything, to watch anything, to have really any distractions at all. I was sitting at a table with my sweater and looking at the chart and using a little pebble to move along to make sure that I wasn't losing track of my stitch count and it required intense focus. That was good and bad. I mean, it was frustrating because I'm used to using my knitting time as sort of relaxing, maybe watching a podcast or a movie kind of time and I really couldn't do any of that. But it made the time pass in a different kind of way because I was completely focused on what I was doing and it did have a head clearing type effect. Now I'm working on a 12 stitch repeat, the tree part of the design, which is the one that has caught my eye in every version of this Lovage sweater that I've seen, is this beautiful band with these lovely trees in it. So I couldn't wait to get to that part. And I had rearranged some of the charts so that I knit a little more on the body and the sleeves before joining to avoid that effect where you lift up your arms and the whole sweater comes up. So I rearranged um, the motifs and now I'm putting in this tree pattern just after having joined the sleeves with the body. So now I'm knitting 
the largest circumference that I'll be knitting throughout the sweater because it's all the sleeve stitches and all the body stitches all at once. And I thought I had the colors picked out for this portion of the color work. And then I started second guessing everything as I was joining. Too much thinking time. So I thought, oh, this sort of yellow that I picked, maybe it really doesn't have enough contrast for the main color. It's going to look like I'm just repeating the main color in this part of the sweater. I should use a brighter yellow for the background. So I started knitting with the brighter yellow and I thought, oh my God, when you look at the sweater, all you're going to see is this bright yellow band. It's too bright. And I went back and forth and back and forth. And this is 208 stitches around. No, no. 408 stitches around. It's 408 stitches around. That's a lot to unpick. Uh, if I'm going to take it out and I kept going back and forth, back and forth. Ultimately, I decided the yellow was too bright. But I also thought the other yellow I had was too pale. And of course, this was when my local yarn store had already closed. So I couldn't run down and just see if I could find another yellow. And so what I decided to do was just keep one round of that very bright yellow and then shift to a more neutral, heathered type of yellow. It reminds me of buttered corn, the yellow that I'm using. <laughs> and then I have a very deep wine red for the color of the trees. And I thought what I would do is just repeat that one round of very bright yellow at the top of that motif so that it gives maybe the illusion, that's what I'm hoping, it gives the illusion of the yellow being a little brighter than it is without just being the only thing you see when you look at a sweater. I mean, there's a reason that a lot of our road signs and school buses and other things are yellow because it's the first color your eye detects when you're looking at a field of color. And so I didn't want all of the nuanced color work of the sweater just to be reduced to one motif that you see when you look at the sweater. So I'm hoping, hoping, hoping it works. Um, this motif will take quite a while to knit. It's pretty tall and it's just a lot of stitches around. And I think that I really won't have a great idea of the effect until I knit the whole thing. Um, I'm ahead of my projected piece for this sweater. So if I do have to rip it out and make a change, I guess I still have time to work that in. But of course, I would prefer not to have any setbacks and just to keep on with the knitting. The front porch. As I'm sure you can understand, all of this focused knitting time has given me the opportunity to dream about what I will knit next when this really complicated long-term project is off the needles. 
And the first thing I will tackle is the hot pink band on my Lotta dress. I have yet to wear it because even though the weather has cooled some, it's still been very humid. So I haven't worn it and I will wear it before fixing it, but that's something I hope to do immediately upon completing the sweater. And I also just need some easy knitting, just easy, easy knitting. So the two projects I have in mind for uh, late October and November are to knit a poncho with my Hog Island hand spun. And I've been looking at the poncho, uh, easy poncho or something. It's the church mouse yarns one. It's just docinette. But I saw in a few projects that people had done the whole thing in a wide rib, like a 10 by 10 rib or something like that. And I thought that would give it some texture and make the knitting a bit more interesting, but still super easy and just be a really nice showcase for this indigo dyed yarn. And then I started thinking about, there's been a lot of buzz about a, um, a stole in the recent issue of Pom Pom Magazine that has, I think it's called Star Map. It's knit in a mohair blend and then there's stitching of like the night sky on top of it. So I started, you know, sort of going down that path, thinking about those ideas of embroidering and the whole woolly tattoo idea. And I thought that if I did a, a wide rib on this poncho, that the stockinette rib portion might be an interesting showcase for some contrast stitching. The most recent edition of Taproot Magazine has a few little like very spindly flower and leaf designs that would look good on a narrow strip of ribbing. And I thought that could be even something ongoing that I could knit the poncho and then add to it over time. So that seems certain that I will work on that. I'm really itching to knit with that hand spun and see uh, how that works up. And I think I have the perfect amount. Um, the other project is something to go with the blazer that I have cut and ready, but I just haven't had the headspace to start sewing it yet. And that is the Haramir jacket from Merchant and Mills workbook. And I found the Arica cowl by Jean Richmond. It's a big, chunky, very fringy cowl that I think will fill the space in the neckline of the jacket just perfectly. And it checks all those boxes of like a super quick knit. And for this cowl, I have ordered and received some beautiful blacker yarns tour in the very feminine pink color. It's kind of a heathered pink. It's absolutely gorgeous. Uh, my order came from the Woolly Thistle Lickety Split, and I've just been dreaming about winding this yarn and starting this pattern. I plan to hold the yarn double. It calls for about 200 yards 
I think that includes the fringe. I hope that includes the fringe because this cowl absolutely demands the fringe. So it's about 209 yards of a bulky weight. So I think this tour held double will really be beefy and I think it also will have a tendency to plump quite a bit on blocking and that's on 10 or 10 and a half needles or something like that so a really quick knit with really dramatic impact. Once again the patterns that I've mentioned so far in this episode are Lovage by Marie Wallen Easy Folded Poncho by Church Mouse Yarns and Tees, and The Erica Cowl by Jane Richmond. Off the Shelf. This week, the style issue of the New Yorker magazine arrived in the mail, and I was very pleased to find a poem by Sharon Olds inside. Sharon Olds is an American female poet and I think she's remarkable for incorporating very intimate details into her poems. She doesn't shy away from talking about sexual intimacy, the body, her children, herself in very intimate ways that somehow still, I think because of her very plain American cadence in her lines, they invite the reader in rather than holding the reader at arm's length. Like this is private, look out. It's like, this is private, look in. Um, She, as wonderful as her poems are, it's even more amazing to Uh, see her read her poems because she's very expressive and engaging. I've seen her a number of times at Geraldine R. Dodge poetry events and she will be appearing at the Dodge Festival this fall. It's the same weekend as Rhinebeck uh, but it's an amazing festival in held in Newark, New Jersey. It's four days of poets and poetry and We send some of our high school students for high school student day. There's poetry all around at the PAC Center and then all around the downtown area in different venues. And she'll be reading there. This is called No Makeup. I think it's an interesting um, and very timely kind of intersection with style and the feminine and what it means to be a woman and how we handle issues of femininity. No Makeup by Sharon Olds. Maybe one reason I do not wear makeup is to scare people. If they're close enough, they can see something is different with me. Something unnerving. As if I have no features. I am embryonic, pre-eyebrows, pre-eyelids, pre-mouth. I am like a water bear talking to them or an amniotic traveler, a vitreous floater on their own eyeball. Human ectoplasm risen on its hind legs to discourse with them. And such a white, white girl, such a sickly toadstool, so pale, a visage of fog, a fizz of mist above a graveyard, 
No magenta roses, no floral tribute, no goddess, no grown-up woman, no acknowledgement of the drama of secondary sexual characteristics, just the gray matter of spirit talking, the thin features of a gray girl in a gray graveyard, granite, ash, chalk, dust. I tried the paint, but I could feel it on my skin. I could hardly move under the mask of my desire to be seen as attractive in the female way of 1957, and I could not speak. And when the makeup came off, I felt actual as a small mammal in the woods with a speaking continence or a basic primate having all the expressions that evolved in us to communicate. If my teenage acne had left scars, if my skin were rough instead of soft, I probably couldn't afford to hate makeup or to fear so much the beauty salon or the very idea of beauty ship. And my mother was beautiful, did I say this? In my small eyes and my smooth, withered skin, you can see my heart. You can read my naked lips. And so forth. I had a sewing day with my mom. We've been doing this a few times over the course of the summer. I had a long weekend for the Jewish holidays and we made a date to spend a day together working on a project for one of my sisters that we would send off as a birthday gift. I brought the printed pattern and fabric for the forager vest. This has been a long-awaited pattern by So Liberated, and it's available in the grain issue of Taproot Magazine, the most recent issue. The way this particular pattern worked is that you went to the website and you could print out uh, a print-at-home version on 20 pieces of 8.5 by 11 paper and tape it together and cut it out, and there was also a larger print shop version that you could have printed at your own print shop or use PDF plotting uh, or something along those lines. I printed this out and taped it together since it wasn't, it didn't seem too involved. And I also used the method that I've seen on the So Photo Hop. Have you been following So Photo Hop hashtag on Instagram? There was a day, I forget which day, but it had to do with tips and tricks. And um, someone posted that when she does the PDF printout on her home printer, she doesn't just tape all of the pieces together and then cut it out. She kind of rough cuts the pieces of the pattern and then only tapes together the essential parts. And I... I found myself doing that, but it was good to receive kind of clarification on what would work. Once one piece of paper is a little bit shifted and then you keep working your way across, by the time you get to the end, you have kind of like a big ripple or bubble in your PDF pattern. It kind of drives me nuts, but I like the immediate gratification of having the pattern right away. So this is nice in that it's a one-size-fits-all pattern. Um, 
if you're not very tall or very tall, I guess you could easily shorten and lengthen the back and the front pieces to adjust to your height, but it seems like a pretty versatile piece. The armholes are very, very large, um, so it, it, it definitely has the characteristics of a one-size-fits-all item. It's fine to print the PDF version, tape it together, and it's not included in the magazine. I have no issue with that. I did, however, find the all-text, no diagrams, no uh, image tutorial. Uh, There was nothing visual in the directions for the pattern. There were several lovely photographs, clear and lovely photographs of the model wearing the garment, so you could extrapolate some of those things. But I I just found it frustrating and kind of awkward that in a very easy uh, one-size garment, that would be attractive to people who probably haven't sewn before or haven't sewn very much before, that you would put all the directions in text only and have no pictures, graphs, diagrams, instructions, nothing. I think those could have been made available online um, the same way you would access the pattern if, if printing space were an issue. Uh, But also, I think to add insult to injury, uh, further on in the grain issue, there are other projects that go a long way in including images and visuals to help you see how to put something together. So the fact that this didn't have it, I think was frustrating and an oversight, and it could have easily been rectified since you know, it didn't seem space was an issue for these other projects. I don't know. I mean, I like the idea of sewing patterns being included in something like Taproot. I mean, the huge range of diversity in the things that they put out is very interesting and appealing. Uh, But I think that a little more thought could have gone into that and maybe Maybe only one or two photographs of the garment and then some time devoted to how-to diagram. Um, Sewing with my mom was interesting because she looked at all the pictures and read through all the directions. And then, of course, she wanted to make some changes (laughs) in the way we put it together. This forager vest is an open front vest, very large armholes, as I said, and the distinguishing feature is gigantic pockets in the front, two gigantic pockets in the front. And those pockets, if you really are foraging or gardening or collecting eggs or whatever, those pockets should be able to handle a ton of weight because they're giant. So you could put potentially a lot of stuff in there. And that means the way you stitch the pockets and then the construction of the whole garment itself really needs to support all of that weight that you could put in those pockets. So my mom thought that the yoke, there's a very small back yoke, she thought that that 
should be doubled. And so when we folded the fabric and cut out the other pieces, even though you only needed one yoke for the directions, she told me to just keep that on folded fabric and cut out two. And she sandwiched the back piece between those two yokes so that you had additional stability in the garment. And then we also took the step, as is suggested in the pattern, we took the step of using French seams for all the seaming. This is particularly helpful at the shoulder to help balance all of that weight. And I also thought that a little hang um, tab, like a, a little a little loop to hang this forager vest would be a really great addition. So we fashioned one of those and we thought about all the different places that we could put it. We ended up putting it along the back yoke, but I think another place you could put it is inside, of course, and then also you could incorporate the loop where there's an inverted pleat. Um, the back fabric is very big and you pleat it a little bit to kind of create a back gusset. And I think you could incorporate a little loop to hang the vest right there when you sew it together. I saw this vest as an opportunity to use up some scrap fabrics. And so while we used a kind of ticking for the main body and the yoke of the vest, I wanted to use scrap fabric for the bias bindings and for the pockets. So I had some quilting cotton with this really cool Luna Moth design left over from a, a top I made, and it was just enough to get those giant pockets cut out. But I, the quilting cotton wasn't as heavy as the ticking fabric, and those pockets, again, supporting a lot of weight, I wanted them to have some more stability. So I used a technique that I had actually used when I was cutting out my Haramir jacket, that there were pieces of interfacing, pattern pieces for pieces of interfacing that were affixed to the lining and to the main fabric of the jacket in certain places to give it more stability. And in my process of cutting out the fabric, I cut those interfacing pieces and immediately affixed them to the garment so they wouldn't get lost or stuck to the wrong thing or I would lose track of where they went because the, the placing of them was very specific. And I thought it was quite clever. So I used that idea and I cut out an extra strip, a strip of interfacing that I affixed to the pocket where it's folded at the top. So the opening of the pocket. It's doubled over, but now there's a piece of interfacing in there to give that even more stability. And my mom, who did all the sewing, so this is in and so forth, but full disclosure, I did not stitch a single stitch. I was in charge of the cutting and the pinning and the ironing and the placement and all of that, but my mom did all the sewing. It was her machine and it just we kept the learning curve flat <laughs> for this project. So I affixed it to the pocket and when she stitched it down, she took the extra step of really reinforcing 
the stitching at the top of the pocket. I don't think that that is in the directions, but it should be because you would easily have your pocket coming undone if it's not really reinforced at the top and you're using it to carry some heavy things. One of the things I've been trying to think about in sewing is reducing waste when possible. And I think this project is a great way to use up scraps. Um, it would be interesting to have a contrast pocket. Even the yoke could be cut out of a small piece of scrap fabric since it's a very small piece. And then I think it could be a great way of using up scraps to create the bias binding. I also think, though, that for a beginning sewist, it might be a lot easier just to have store-bought bias tape because you need a lot of it. It goes all the way around these huge armholes and all the way around the front collar and opposite front. My mom really wanted to kind of like redesign the whole pattern and incorporate the pockets in the seam. She said that sewing the pockets on wasn't as structurally sound as like incorporating them into the sides and bottom of the garment. And she was like ready to redesign the whole thing. But I, I thought we would follow through with the directions mostly as written, at least for the first time, and then maybe go off further off script in other versions of the pattern. I think for some future vests that I plan to make, I will take out a whole bunch of scraps and just have some fun making my own like crazy pieced bias tape. But that can be tricky for a beginning sewist and a, a real extra step. And so I think using some, some store-bought tape certainly wouldn't be out of the question. Once again, this... Um, Project was the Forager Vest, designed by So Liberated, and it appeared in the green issue of Taproot Magazine. Acorns jumping off my Chinese house. Two ducks in my spyglass, furry as a mouse. It's a sweet nature, sweet nature thing. Thanks for listening. Music for this episode is so sweet. Music and lyrics by Samuel St. Thomas, performed by Bovine Social Club. Eat well and stay strong as you hone your post-apocalyptic skill set this week.
Thank you. 